Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Everybody knows today's guest, kind of, for founding Kayak, the search engine that lets the lets us get a good deal on travel. He founded it. He sold it to Priceline. What we should know you for, Paul, I should introduce him as Paul English. We should know you as the founder of that. You know what I keep hearing about you, though? You're the guy who drove an Uber through Boston. Yeah, that, that is true. I, I don't know why you did it. I don't know what you got out of it, but I do know that that's the thing that's stuck in my mind about you. Before I even said, oh, I get to interview the guy from Kayak, I said, I get to interview the guy who I read about going in the Uber and giving people a ride. Anyway, we're going to find out about Kayak launching. We're going to find out in this interview about how he followed it up with a company called Lola. I've been super fascinated by this other company he created called Get Human, which allows, you know how when you call a company you have to wait on hold forever, and then when they're ready to take your call, that's when you get to talk to them. Well, Get Human allows you to bypass all that. I invested in a competitor, Paul, I'll be honest with you. I don't think it did well. I wonder how Get Human did, and I wonder if, if there's software solution to this problem. So we'll talk about that in this interview, and we'll talk about Moonbeam, Paul's new app to help us discover podcasts, and as a podcaster, I need this. It's really hard to get listeners. The hardest part of podcasting is not the mic. It's not having the guts to ask questions. The hardest part is getting listeners. We're going to talk about that and so much more in this interview. Thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first will host your website, right? It hosts my site. It's called HostGator. The second, well, will help you grow your traffic to your website. It's called SEMrush. But first, Paul, good to have you here. Yeah, great to meet you, Andrew. Thank you. I'm curious about a bunch of things with you, but I'm Maybe we could take it to a happy day. The day that you sold Kayak, was that the happy day for you? Where you, like you said, oh, we did I it? Mean, that's, yeah, that certainly was a big day for us. We started the company in 2004. We took it public in 2012 and then sold it in 2013. Um, certainly taking it public and selling it were big milestones. But there were other big milestones along the way as well. Like, for example, one of my favorites is... One day, and I forget what year this was, but if you go to Google, you just type the letter K and nothing else, the first thing that shows up is kayak. And that's when we got to a certain level of popularity. We became the most popular thing on Google that started with the letter K. I thought that was like super, super cool. But we had a lot of really fun mile songs along the way. I think, um, you know, I think now there's maybe 100 million people that have downloaded the kayak app for Android or iPhone. And that certainly was an exciting milestone. Were you the most successful uh, travel app for a while there in the App Store? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the one that, that had the nice polish, the one that was featured, the one that was most downloaded. Maybe we can go back and understand how you got here. Your very first business I read on Wikipedia was a game that you created on your home computer as a kid. What was the game? The game was called Cupid, and it's really, I taught myself to program. It was on a Commodore computer. And it came with a little manual explaining basic. And so my first app was in basic language. I then went to assembly after that when I wanted to have more control. But it was a game that um, Cupid would shoot arrows and you would try to escape the arrows and collect all the hearts on the screen. And I'm a former musician. I used to be a pretty serious musician in high school and in college. And I was particularly proud of the sound effects. I did all the sounds myself and the music and the graphics and it was a really fun game i sold it for twenty five thousand dollars plus a dollar royalty per cartridge sold and that was uh, i think i was like 16 years old when i sold it so that was that was actually a really huge hit for me did you get the twenty five thousand? 
sadly, the company that I sold it to went out of business right after we sold it. So all it, they ever sent me was $5,000 down payment, but it was enough for me to buy a really sick software and hardware development studio for my house. And what'd you make with that? I built, I bought a computer that was called an Apple II Plus. It had 48K of RAM and had floppy drives. And I bought a EEPROM burner, like a little oven so I could bake my own proms, EEPROMs. And then from there, I could develop video games for other systems. Because keep in mind, back in the 80s, all the video games came in cartridges you had to plug into a, to a, something like the Atari, VCS, et cetera. And so I built a system for that. And I actually have a brother. I'm one of seven. Only one sibling is in the tech industry, my brother Ed. And he actually is a pretty famous programmer. In the 1980s, his big game was Frogger for the Atari platform. I remember Frogger. It's uh, it's legend. What was it like to have Frogger in the family? It was pretty cool. I mean, when he was developing it, it wasn't famous yet. So I was like kind of doing QA for him during the development. But once it got released, I think he sold, he was working for Parker Brothers. And I think they sold 4 million cartridges the first year, which was a pretty big hit um, back in the 80s. And I'm it was awesome. I'm trying to understand with you, Paul. Why did you do that? Why did you decide that you wanted to create cartridges? Why did you make your first game? Was it to be like your brother? Were you just a constant tinker? I'm trying to get a sense of who you were before the stakes meant anything. I just, um, you know, I, again, I was a pretty serious musician. And when I learned programming, I fell in love with programming. There's the whole idea of you can take something from concept to customer really rapidly. That was exciting. And I couldn't imagine any other hobby or industry where you could do that. So like if I couldn't make money in engineering in software, I think I would pay money like to go to camps or program on the weekends for people. It's just like, it's that fun for me. So for each app that I developed in high school and beyond, it was about designing something and getting it in the hand of users and seeing what they thought about it. And I love that I cycle. I get that. It is. You're saying you'd be like those people who are in baseball camps as 50 year old men where they just want to get to play baseball and they're playing, they're playing it and they're paying for the right to play it. You would be that in love with development. Yes. A hundred percent. Do you have any hobbies outside of this, outside of software creation? I mean, I love travel. So pre-COVID, I travel about 100,000 miles a year. So I travel typically like the last 10 years, a couple times a month, like one time for maybe a week, another time for a weekend or a long weekend. So I'm obsessed with travel and meeting people in different cultures. I like going to places like Tokyo and Nairobi and just, um, I don't know, just excited to meet people in different countries and cultures. I guess that's my number one hobby. And then I like reading and then recently, and uh, it, I mean, I've been listening to podcasts for, it seems like 10 years, but really been interested in podcasts in the last year or two, which led to the creative creation of Moonbeam. So I guess those are my hobbies, travel, reading, I mean, working out, meditation, and podcasts. I'm kind of addicted to podcasts too. I walk around the house with them on. I love that I could play them on my speakers all over the house. When you do it, 
I remember talking to the founder of Gimlet and asking, why do people listen to podcasts? And he told me that one of the reasons was they just like to have company. Some people do it for education, some for entertainment, others for company. I get that. I hate silence. When you do it, why do you listen to podcasts? It's mostly for education. I have this weakness that if I'm sitting somewhere and doing nothing, I feel like I'm, I feel guilty doing nothing. Like I'm not learning. I used to feel so pre COVID, I almost never watched TV, maybe like a couple hours a month, because I felt like if I watched something on TV at the end of that hour, two hours, that I just wasted two hours of my life that I would want back on my deathbed. Um, and for me, you know, like when I'm driving, I like listening to podcasts so I can be learning something. I do too. I, I don't want to undersell the importance of learning through podcasts. It's just like this ambient education. I learned about NFTs on a podcast. Um, the problem then I'm surprised that you didn't tackle was how do you remember and take notes with, with podcasts and with audiobooks? Do you have that issue? That's why that's one of my big challenges that the host will say something and I'll think I should go back and write what she said down and I never do and I never follow up or rarely do and it's a problem for me. Yeah, one of the things we, we have done in the Moonbeam app is make it really easy for people to create clips of a podcast and to share that. So sometimes you might listen to an hour long show and maybe the show is amazing, but there might be something poignant that happens at eight minutes and 30 seconds in that's like, whoa. That's yes. the story that I'm excited about. I want to tell my friends about that. So we make it easy to do that, to share at the point you're listening. And um, yeah, I guess that's that's the way we do it in Moonbeam anyway. I see you're saying if you're going to do notes anyway, then you might as well turn them into a shareable piece of content so that you can share it with other people. Notes in your notebook aren't as helpful as notes shared with, with other people. I get that. You know what I don't get, Paul? You got a full-time business. Lola, this app that I would have in, in anyone else, in anyone else's hands might have died, right? It it had to do with uh, travel at a time when travel was shut down. Lola then pivoted. I don't know if you always thought that you were going to do it, but you transitioned into allowing CFOs to control the spending within their companies. That's a full time gig. What are you doing creating Moonbeam on the side and solving this podcaster problem of discovery and sharing? Yeah, I've always um, I saw a tweet yesterday that um, I'm embarrassed, I'm forgetting who put this out there, but that they don't respect people who don't have side projects. And I know that when I recruit people to join my team at Lola, I do ask them about side projects. I want to make sure that people are passionate enough about things and ideas and action oriented enough that they do something with some of their ideas. And so for me, like Get Human that you mentioned earlier, that was created as a side project while I was at Kayak. And I think Get Human now has served over 200 million people information about customer service and getting around the evil IVRs. And so for me, Moonbeam, it's one of these things where I can't let go of the fact that I love podcasts and I find the Apple player and Spotify to be really subpar. So it, Spotify and Apple doesn't solve what's important to me in podcasting, which is one, I want to figure out how can I discover the next great show? And two, if I really like a show, how can I reach through my phone and connect to that podcast host? What's the relationship between the listener and the host? Like, how does the host know at the end of a show, what part of the show did your fans like? Uh, what part of the show did they share? When, you know, when did they get inspired? How do you communicate with them? Can you email them? 
So I'm trying to do discovery and yeah. then relationship between host and listener. You know what? Sam Parr of The Hustle will say, go into this new Facebook group that we've created. I see how active it is, but it's still another place to go. And it's apart from what I'm doing at the moment. And I've got to now go back in and find the conversation at, around this latest episode or around the episode that I'm listening to that's two weeks old. And that just doesn't that doesn't work for me. I, I agree with you on that. I've seen some hosts say, send me a message on Twitter. I've said, email me. My email address is open, andrew at mixergy.com. I do feel that that part has not yet been solved. I agree with you on that. I think Spotify, though, is getting better at discovery. They're watching what I'm listening to. They're watching what other people like me are listening to. And it's making these aggressive recommendations. And I say aggressive because it's no longer recommending music to me anymore. Now, because I listen to podcasts on there, they're just bombarding me with podcasts and I haven't discovered music in a long time with them. What do you think about their methodology? I like Spotify Spotify as a music app. I like Discover Weekly. I think the two greatest machine learning platforms out there right now are Spotify Music Discover Weekly and TikTok for video. And TikTok in particular has been really inspirational to me. Because the first time you use TikTok for the first week, you see people doing dancing videos or whatever, which is like great. But the more you use TikTok, it really nails your interest. And so for me, TikTok discovered pretty quickly that I like dogs. And so it shows me all these amazing, hilarious and poignant videos about dogs and dogs and kids, which I think are amazing because my kids each have dogs. And um, what we're trying to do with Moonbeam is just like TikTok, TikTok has a user interface, which is designed to guide the machine learning. So there are certain activities you can do right on the TikTok screen. You can share, you can comment, you can mark something as a favorite. You can listen to it twice in a row. You maybe listen to something, you watch a video all the way through, maybe just swipe up and ignore it. And we're trying to do the same intentional interaction with Moonbeam. So that as you listen to a show, if you don't like it, just swipe up, swipe up, swipe up. We're going to watch what you don't like, and we're going to watch which things do you listen all the way through and which ones you interact with. And based on that, our machine learning, machine learning is going to predict another episode, another show that you might like. I mean, for me, again, Spotify is a great music app. I don't like mixing my music app with my, um, with my podcast app. It's just like I listen, I use Audible for books. And I like having Audible as a separate app that does nothing but books on tape. So I want to have my books app. I want to have my video app, my Twitter app. Like I like an app for each reason and I don't like mixing. For example, I actually don't like stories when I like Instagram for what it was created for. I hate all the stories at the top because it takes me away from what I'm trying to do, which is scroll through and see photos from friends and people who inspire me. And I guess I just don't like mixing media. I think I'm discovering the problem with mixing media. I see why it's great for Spotify because it shifts me away from music that they have to pay for to podcasts that they don't have to pay for. And so it's great for their business model. I'm finding that it's not wonderful for my experience. The only thing that I do like about Spotify, I like their discovery, so it's it's helpful. The thing that I that I can't live without is the ability to broadcast from my phone or my watch to any speaker in my house. 
And that is just magic. I'm in a room and I'm listening to my earphones while I just broadcast it out to the speaker. I'm about to get out of the house and go pick up the kids from somewhere or go for a run. It's on the speaker. Put it back in my earphones. That kind of like that smoothness they nailed for for music and it's great for podcast listening. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I use Sonos in my house, but my car is set up for Bluetooth as most people are these days. I'm actually intrigued, by the way, have you seen the Spotify device they're coming out with the car? I put my name on the wait list on that. I don't know why I would need it, but I'm curious. You too, right? Yeah, it looks wild. I mean, I don't think I will need it either because my iPhone works just fine in my car. But I'm so intrigued that they're trying this experiment that I'm going to check it out. Yeah, that's the only reason I signed up. I said, let's just see what can they create. And I do listen to music and podcasts that I drive all the time. So you don't find yourself, Paul, like now with your attention, instead of being focused on Lola, thinking about this, instead of saying, what can I do to improve my customers' lives, thinking about how can I figure out this podcasting thing? Isn't it a diversion? Well, I mean, a lot of people have hobbies, right? And they're able to successfully do their day job and then do their hobbies, right? Like some people might be a college professor, but then, and maybe she takes that job very seriously, but at the weekends, she might want to play golf. And I don't think if a professor wants to play golf, that that takes away from her teaching. And for me, one of my hobbies is software design. So if I work really hard at Lola, and I do work, I don't work crazy hours, but I do think about Lola seven days a week. And I do work a little bit. If an idea hits me, night of the weekend, I'll write something up and fire off an email to the people I work most closely with at Lola. But that being said, I think it's healthy for people to have hobbies. My hobby just happens to be software design. So it's not unusual for me to design an app on the side. And I don't think that it is a conflict at all. I think there's things I can learn about podcast apps that are actually going to help me with Lola. Have you found that with Get Human? Get Human is, um, I think at its core, what Get Human does is says, here's the phone number for Chase, and here's what you have to press to get a human being at Chase. And then, of course, if you want, I think you also partnered up with someone that if I don't want to wait on hold, Get Human will basically call up and wait on hold for me. Am I right in summing it up? Yeah, you can, you can have Get Human make the phone call for you and resolve the issue. If you want to pay, a Get Human human will do the work for you. You can also do things like, we have a patent at Get Human on we're calling Chase Bank all the time, all day long. If someone calls us and said, I want to talk to Chase Bank, guess what? Our robot has already been on hold with them for 10 minutes. So we uh. let you call about 10 minutes. If no one uses Get Human to call Chase and Chase answers the phone, our robot just hangs up immediately. But we're doing a lot to try to minimize your time on hold and also to avoid the evil IVR, the integrated voice response system. Press one for this, press two for that. Those systems are incredibly annoying. Those are the worst. They're the worst because they're outdated at this point. We all hate them. They're so outdated. I would much, especially the ones that say, well, if you press this button, we'll call you back. Well, why didn't you just do this ahead of time? I think the future has got to be somewhere where I want to talk to a person if they don't have someone available right now and I have to wait in line. Let me do it by text message before I come through. Let me do it somehow on my phone, not by dialing in. Yeah, I'll tell you the real solution, Andrew. It, it's going to require participation by Apple and Google to do this correctly. But you want to do voice and data as one call. What you want to do is call Chase on your iPhone. And then instead of an mm. IVR talking to you and talking really slowly, if right. you're looking for this and information about COVID and blah, 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 blah. Instead of that, you call Chase on your iPhone 
why not show me a menu right there on my iPhone? I can read quicker than I can listen. And I just go click, 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 hit buttons on my iPhone. And then when a human, I need to talk to a human, the human comes in line and I can talk to them. So what we need is an integration between rich user interface experience, which is works very well, and voice when you need voice. But IVR is inane. IVR it's, should not it's, exist. I feel like it's them saying, we don't care about customer service enough to care about this. We don't care enough about customer service to spend money on it. Let them wait. It's better for us. Yeah, it makes me crazy. I mean, I'm particularly shocked that with your own phone company, like I pay Verizon 100 bucks a month. I'm paying a phone company $100 a month, yet I can't get them on the phone. It just seems insane. That's why I'm sticking with T-Mobile. I can get them on the phone and text messages and the works. Otherwise, their service is not that great compared to Verizon, but they'll talk to me. I'm willing to do it. Um, And then they'll be open with me when there's a problem. So do you have an example of something that you learned at Get Human that you were able to bring back to Kayak, to Lola, to your your full-time business? Yeah, sure. So Get Human, um, we became really obsessed with trying to understand why are people calling Verizon? Like what when they're upset, what are they upset at? And how do you provide service? And what is good service and what is bad service? And we took a lot of those lessons to Kayak about why are people calling kayak and why are they upset at kayak and how can we solve those issues so they don't have to wait on hold at kayak and so we had this religion where i had a um this red phone it looked like a bat phone with a mechanical ringer that sat on my desk at kayak we had an open office and i published the phone number to the phone on my desk on kayak's website if you just went to kayak and you clicked help or contact and we didn't show it a hundredth of the time because we had literally millions of people a day using Kayak. But we showed it enough that I would get 10 or 12 calls a day. And people would um, sometimes be very upset. And I like talking to them because for every one person that called us, it's probably 100 or 1,000 people have the same problem, but they didn't bother to call. So I actually think talking to people is really useful. I heard you asked the engineers to take turns answering that red phone so that they would get the same experience. Yeah, and some engineers are better at it than others. Um, I used to have this saying at Kayak. I've seen in prior tech companies, people would make fun of, quote unquote, stupid customers. Like, you won't believe what this customer said to me today. And I used to always say at Kayak, Kayak has no stupid customers. Maybe Expedia has stupid customers, but (laughs) Kayak does not. Kayak might have customers that are not technical, and maybe they're confused, and maybe they're busy trying to do 10 things at once. But if we lift up our game and say, we're going to make our software easy, even for those customers, then it works really well for the customers who happen to be tech savvy. The original idea was to create a search engine for a kayak, a search engine for travel. I think, I don't know if you used it internally or if it was an article that I read about you at launch that said it's like Google for travel. Am I right? We wanted to be a pure search engine. The leader at the time when we created Kayak was Expedia, and they were a merchant. They would only show you stuff that they could sell. At Kayak, we don't like the merchant model. We wanted to be a pure search engine. We wanted to make sure we had every hotel on earth, like every flight, every airline, even the low-cost airlines. And when you find the flight you want or the hotel you want on Kayak, we would show you his five places you can buy it. You click off to go to that site and buy it directly. And that model worked really well. So we became known for that. We had wider inventory than anyone else. There was no reason to go check prices on five websites because we had all those prices directly within Kayak. 
and then you were making a commission from some of those sales, but not all of them, right? That's right. Exactly. You have any issues with them uh, being on your site in the early days? In the first year or two, we just scraped websites without their permission. And people ignored us because we were so small. And then we started growing really rapidly in year two. And we got to the point where I'm not going to name the airline, but there's a big airline that we took down their website because for every search on kayak, we would blow that out to, I mean, a large number of searches. We wanted to get every possible combination and not everyone at kayak was buying. Some of them were just sort of shopping. They weren't ready to buy, but they just want to see what's available. So there's something in the industry called look to book ratio about how many looks to get one book and kayak push that number really high, like orders of magnitude higher than the airline experience on the website. So at one point we took one of the airlines down, their website down, and um, then they started getting pissed off at us and said, you cannot scrape our website. So we started this process, which took years of developing APIs and licensing technology. So we don't have to hit their website for content, but we can get it through other mechanisms. You uh uh, I feel I remember uh, Amazon had that going on for them for a while where they were getting scraped by other sites and they would have to put up barriers. I think for a long time they said you can't see the price until you put it in your shopping cart, that kind of thing. Anyone, was that an issue for you too? I mean, we had a couple famous wars. One, American Airlines um, refused to pay us for leads we sent to them. So what we did is say, fine, we won't send anyone to AmericaAirlines.com. We'll show you content and let people buy it on Orbitz or other sites. We'll still put A on our website. American Airlines didn't like that. And they got very aggressive. And they were the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And they basically found a way to get almost exactly what they wanted from Kayak. They did end up buying display ads from Kayak, but they wouldn't. They had a religion. They wouldn't pay us for the lead, but they found ways to fund us with other mechanisms that, that in the end, it was a win-win. It worked for Kayak and it worked for AA, even though it was a slightly different model than we'd done with some of the other airlines. The deal part of the business wasn't your side. Your side of the business was, how do I get the data that we need? How do I make the site work well, right? Yeah, I was in charge of tech and design. Um, we talked a little bit about Amazon. Um, did you ever get to meet uh, uh, Jeff Bezos Back when Amazon was considering buying your previous company? I met him uh, once at a TED conference and he was pretty rude. A mutual friend introduced us and um, Bezos wanted nothing to do with me. He was, he was actually pretty rude at the time. I met some of the other executives at Amazon early on when I had an e-commerce company called Boston Light. We ended up selling the company to Intuit. But we the mission was we wanted to let any small business set up a storefront with as little work as possible. And they could have an Amazon-like experience on their website, just some random small business. And we went to Amazon and we said, we want to give this ability for Amazon sellers as well to let them sell their own products on your website. So we're going to create storefronts for anyone who wants on Amazon. I, I ran into one of those executives literally 10 years later, and he told me that part of the vision for my little company, Boston Light, informed them to what they ended up calling Z-Shops for letting merchants sell directly on Amazon. And now it's a massive, massive business for them. We ultimately, Amazon was interested in acquiring my little company. Ultimately, we decided to go with Intuit because I like the culture at Intuit. 
and I liked the values. I just thought it was a really, really good company. So that was a great experience for me. I served as VP technology for Intuit for almost four years after we sold our e-commerce company to them. It does seem like their philosophy is similar to yours, especially then the idea that they were going to get into the lives of their customers to understand what they were doing, right? They were ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, Intuit, you mean. Great, great company. I mean, I worked mostly on QuickBooks and developing an online version of QuickBooks and letting people do invoice payment in QuickBooks and e-commerce in QuickBooks. And I learned a lot from Scott Cook. He was kind of my mentor at Intuit. I actually had a few mentors at Intuit, but um, Scott was incredible in terms of customer research. He never let us sit in the lab and pontificate. He always made us talk to customers. And it was really a great way. I mean, a lot of engineers are introverts by nature. I think I'm a little introverted by nature. I'm probably a little bit on the spectrum. And But getting that discipline that I learned at Intuit about talk to customers and with every conversation you will learn something has really helped me in all my future businesses. How did he have you talk to customers back then? It was on the phone or, I mean, in the early days of Intuit, Intuit's first product was Quicken and they literally had this thing called follow me home. This sounds really creepy today, but they would have Intuit employees go into a store like I don't remember what the stores were back then. I don't think it was Office Depot or Staples. Imagine, no, not Staples even. And when someone was buying Quicken, they would be wearing a shirt that said Intuit. And they would say, oh, I noticed you're looking at Quicken. I actually am I'm an engineer. I work for Quicken. I'd love to help you with this product. And they literally would convince this customer to let the engineer go to the customer's house and look at how they use Quicken and give them advice on it. And um, again, that's... It's amazing that Intuit was able to pull that off, but they trained their engineers how to interview people in stores. And Intuit is really all about learn from the user in their context because although Intuit had formal usability testing with, with uh, one-way glass and mm-hmm. you know, really good usability labs, what Intuit really likes doing is learning when you're in the environment of the customer, when the customer is being distracted and getting phone calls in the middle of using your product. Intuit wanted to see what that looked like. So I learned to learn. I learned a lot about that when I was added to it. What's the weirdest interaction that you had, or the? It's not weird, but what's the most invasive way that you studied a customer with their permission? This wasn't invasive customer, but the thing that stands out is we were at a design meeting for QuickBooks, trying to decide how to do online invoicing, and we we're trying to build this network effect where uh, invoice presentment, invoice payment could all happen within the Intuit framework, and we were pontificating about what this might look like and how credit cards would be processed and what the user interface would look like and having an account at Intuit, even if you were just a customer of a landscaper, make sure you had an account that you could pay anyone. And I remember we're sitting around brainstorming and it felt like a really good meeting to me. And Scott Cook was there and he had his arms folded and he was kind of looking down at the floor and you could tell he was getting upset the more and more we pontificated. And Scott said, and I, I don't know if I'm exaggerating or if he actually said this, but my memory is, He said, it's interesting what you guys think, but can someone pick up a fucking phone and call a customer and ask them what they think? I was like, whoa. (laughs) So (laughs) that really taught me, you know, don't spend too much time in the lab without getting a customer involved in the discussion. All right. Let me talk about my first sponsor and then come back in here. I want to just make an observation about one of your previous companies. The, The first sponsor is SEMrush. You use SEMrush? How do you use SEMrush, Paul? 
Yeah, SEMrush. I didn't know it was pronounced SEMrush. I thought it was SEMrush. It used I know to be SEMrush. Yeah, now they want to de-emphasize oh, the fact that they do – yeah, they go more than just search engine marketing. Now they do social. They do op, so, uh, search engine optimization and so on. So they want us to pronounce it SEMrush. But you're right. I, I was pronouncing it in the early days of my ads for them just a few months ago as SEMrush. But SEMrush. How do you use them? Yeah, okay. Okay, well, not to overwhelm <laughs> you and your audience, <laughs> I have two passion projects right now. One of them is Moonbeam and another one – this is a game site. It's a game that I learned in graduate school. It's the Chinese version of chess. And we have this website, it's shangchi.com. The game's called Shangchi. You can also get to ChineseChess.com. And we put a lot of energy into SEO. And I think when we started working on it a year ago, we were, I don't know, number 30 or 40 in Google search results. We're currently number three. And we're working the way up the stack to try to get to number two in the number one position. And so we use a few tools to help us analyze us and our competitors on SEO and SEM. So SEMrush has a report that we use just to grade us versus our competitors. All right. If anyone out there wants to go and try it for themselves, all you have to do is go to SEMrush.com slash Mixergy. Um, they're going to let you use it for free. It's for a limited time. I know that we've run out of those free um, slots in the past, so just use it as fast as possible. Semrush.com slash Mixergy. Look at this Chinese chess. I, I had no idea until I researched you that this even existed. Yeah, it's an amazing game. I learned it in graduate school many years ago. It's sort of the national game of China. And in the U.S., maybe one out of 10 people plays chess. I mean, maybe more than that since the big Netflix hit came out, Queen's Gambit. Um, last year, but in China, it's like over half the people play chess. I've seen e estimates that 600 million people play the Chinese version of chess. It looks similar to the chess that you're probably familiar with. They actually both derive from an ancient Indian game called Chaturanga, but um, it's different enough that it's really intriguing. Like there's no queen, there's two advisors, there's an extra piece called a cannon that jumps over a catapult and lands on the victim. It it's it looks a little bit like chess. You have to learn the Chinese characters because it's had a little figurines, they're little discs with Chinese letters on them. Anyway, it's an amazing game. Really, really fun game. So Can I learn yeah. it on your site? You can. Yeah, we teach people how to play. If you just go to ChineseChess.com. And, and then you pair me up with another player to play kind of like chess.com does, right? Where yeah, it's someone within my a, you can also play against a computer. I want to learn how to play and this game. Team, I've been that's obsessed a project. with lately. I'm actually pretty disciplined with my time. And the Chinese project is something I work on every Saturday morning. So mm -hmm. if your listeners log in East Coast time, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Saturday mornings, I'll be online and debugging the latest software. We have new software that comes out every Friday. So that's my Saturday these, morning passion. These side projects, how much of them is management versus creation? It, they're more creation than management. Okay. And do you have a team then working with you yes. on these? Yes. You do. But it's mostly yes, you sitting down and debugging. Yeah. So all I do is I give, I'm more of the creative type than the management type. So I give ideas of what features we should build and what those features should look like and what the design should look like. And then I have someone who runs each one. So Moonbeam, for example, is run by this amazing CEO in Boulder, Colorado named Mike Chambers. 
And he's really running it day to day. Really, I would almost say seven days a week. He's full-time Moonbeam. And I check in with him once or twice a week. I use the product incessantly. I use it all the time. So I'm sending him bug reports. And then he manages the engineers. I want to make an observation. Your company with uh, Boston Light Software, which allowed, I guess you started out with the Boston Globe, allowed them to sell their merch on their site, and then you developed into software that anyone can use to sell online. You called it QShop. Amazon called it ZShop. Yes. I wonder if that's where they got the name because I never understood where they got Z from. Why wouldn't they call it A Shop or something? You know, what's Z mean? It's the random middle letter that's from their hysterical. name, right? Yeah, we, then, we called it QShop back in 1998, I think, or 1999, maybe. Um, and for us, QShop meant quick shop. It also was fun as part of Intuit that Intuit, for a while, did have a product called QShop that my team built. As cool that they had Quicken and QuickBooks and QShop. I thought that was fun. Three Q uh, products. Finally makes sense. You know, there's actually a business yeah. right now called QShop. I think what they allow people to do is sell on Instagram. Like they're taking the idea, really? they're just What's modernizing the it. Uh, it's like What's it's a Nigerian top-level domain. So it's uh, Q. Uh, here it, it is. Qshop.ng. Yep, it exists. Instagram to e-commerce. Launch your website, and it says two months, but they cross out months and they turn it into two minutes using your Instagram photos. No techie required. Try for free. It's just That's a really awesome. smooth idea, isn't it? I'll take. I'll take a look at that. Why did you not? get scared coming into kayak of the possibility of Google coming in of the, this is a natural part of their business. And it was already from the beginning mentioned. Yeah. I mean, my advice to your listeners who want to start companies is if you're really passionate about something and you think about it 24 seven and you're good at recruiting, you will out execute any company. I remember early on in kayaks first year, maybe we were a year old. I went to visit Orbitz in Chicago. They were a big partner of ours because we were not a merchant. Orbitz was a merchant. In addition, letting people buy at hotels and airlines, we had Orbitz as sort of a backstop that you could buy anything on Kayak. You could also buy an Orbitz. Not everything, but most things. So I met with their CTO and I said, I want to understand more about your technology and I want to give you a demo of Kayak. I remember asking him, how many engineers do you have? And he said he had a thousand. I had 20 engineers. And I said, a thousand engineers, like what do they all work on? It was shocking to me. I remember giving him a demo of Kayak and my second meeting with him was maybe a year after that. And we ran Orbitz in one browser, Kayak in another browser. We searched for Boston to San Francisco. And not only was Kayak dramatically faster, like answers in five or eight seconds where Orbitz took a minute, we actually showed Orbitz results before those results showed up in Orbitz. That's mind blowing. And the guy said, that's technically impossible. He said, you just have an old cache that's inaccurate. I said, yeah, watch this. Now click through 10 orbits results on orbits. Click through the same 10 orbits, the first 10 orbits results on Kayak. What you'll see is we also have a lower error rate than you because not only can we predict your results, we predict your error rate. <laughs> and I did it with a really small team. And the reason we out executed them was we were really, really passionate. And my team worked really hard Startups are hard, you know? I mean, if you want a comfortable job, uh, you shouldn't work at a startup. Startups are hard. Startups are fun. And if the, if the founders are really great recruiters, you can work with some amazing people. But our team at Kayak just 
lived and breathed travel, and we out-innovated the much bigger companies. And I think people can do that against Google, against Facebook, against any big company. If you're truly passionate, you're a good recruiter, and you focus, I think you can out-execute any big company. Your team came from the founding team, Travelocity, um, from Orbitz, from Expedia. What was it that you that you all saw that others hadn't seen? What was the I mean, opportunity that being inside showed you? There's a very funny story about that. So my co-founder, Steve Hafen, who's an extraordinary entrepreneur, he was one of the founders of Orbit. So he and I started Kite together and he did the sales and marketing. I did all the technology and design. Now, early on, we said, we're entering a crowded market. The number one competitor spends a billion in a year in advertising. We're just a little company with $7 million in the bank. How can we compete? And I love recruiting. I've always focused on it. And so one of the things that Steve and I did early is we said, let's build the best board that we possibly can. So people take notice to say, what is this little company Kite doing? How do they get these guys? So we got Greg Slingstad, who was the original CEO of Expedia. He was many years retired. We got um, Terry Jones, who was the original CEO of Travelocity, many years retired. And that got us noticed. Now, interestingly, for the engineers, I secretly refused to hire someone that's ever worked in travel before because I didn't want my engineers to see the way it was done before because I didn't like the way travel was done before. And one day I remember Terry Jones in a board meeting, I was presenting something about our new user interface and he hated it. And he said, this will never work. You know, we tried this at Travelocity, people hated it. Why don't you hire someone who works at Travelocity? It's annoying that you so many stupid designs. And I said, I'll hire someone at Travelocity as soon as I can find someone smart who worked there. I just haven't found such a person yet. <laughs> said that about his company directly to the chairman or his old, his previous company. Um, why did the company sell? I even why, did Kayak, that why did Kayak sell? It was just months after the IPO. It was, it was, yeah, it was, an, it was an unsolicited offer. And um, it was a good financial outcome. The board were believers in Priceline stock. And Priceline was very aggressive coming after Kayak. And they sold a dream about investing in Kayak and what they wanted to make Kayak become. And Steve was really excited about it. He liked Jeff Boyd quite a bit, who was the CEO of, Booking, of uh, I said, almost said Booking.com, of Priceline at that point. And it turned out to be a really good marriage. I opted out a year into it because I felt like I had been there, done that, done all the work for 10 years at Kayak, done all the design, and I wanted to try something different. Steve is still there today. I didn't realize that. Wow. Um, the sale happened almost a decade ago. That's huge in this space. Yeah. Lola. Lola, uh, I found an old article. Here's how they described Lola just before the launch. Said raise $19.7 million, and as of this writing, near its launch, will have travel agents create itineraries for consumers who will rate their experience from one to five. Was that the original idea? It was. Well, the original, original idea wasn't even a travel company. It was to build a chat app that let you chat with a remote assistant who have access to your calendar, your contacts, and your credit cards, and who could take tasks on for you. And when I pitched that to one of my investors, he said, that's a brilliant idea, but do do travel as your first vertical. I never had intended to go back into travel again, but it completely made sense. And we very quickly learned that although leisure travelers would like having an assistant, the people who really need an assistant are business travelers. Because if you're late 
to Puerto Rico, you might be, you know, late to get on the beach one afternoon if your flight is delayed. If you're delayed in a business trip to Chicago, that flight delay might cancel your entire reason for the trip. So business travelers, it's really mission critical that they get places on time and they do need humans to help them with it. So that was became the original execution plan for Lola was having humans available 24 by seven that could help business travelers with anything that they needed. Um, since then, as you and I talked about briefly before we went live here, um, last year obviously was just awful for the travel industry. And we did a major pivot. And now Lola is really a fintech company. We focus on employee spend management and travel. Where travel is where they spend the most amount of money. But we're looking at everything that an employee spends money on and helping the company manage that expense. That's like a brand new business, right? It really is. It really is. And how is that to turn it around? You have to figure out the new idea. You have to make you have to start testing it. You have to scrap the old one. What was it like internally to do that? Change is hard. Humans do not like change. Um, <clears throat> I mean, almost from an evolutionary brain evolution standpoint, humans like patterns. They're really good at pattern recognition and they like predictability and they like finding out what works and then sitting on that, you know, keep using that. Uh, but as entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs are people who can change and know when to change. And then the thing next thing you have to learn, if you're a scrappy entrepreneur and you are open to learning from customers and learn when you need to change, you need to learn how to lead change. And leading change is its own discipline. And there's a lot you need to do as a leader to get your company to shift direction and get them excited about it. So there's just constant communication, redundant communication in Slack and email on Zoom in person. And you have to get people excited about why you're making a change. And for us, the message was pretty simple to our team. So 2019 was a really rapid growth year for Lola for business travel. And the thing that caused us to be so, so successful is we started selling travel management to CFOs. And the CFOs loved Lola because we could allow them just by clicking a few buttons, set up some rules where like we can tell who flies business class when, how much of people play in pay for a hotel in Chicago? How much did they pay for a hotel in Miami? And um, that was successful. But the better we got to know these CFOs, we realized that they look at travel as just one category of expense. So they um, really, we began these conversations in 2019 about, can we help them with the other categories of expense that they're trying to manage? And that began the work for what we now call spend management. And the way it works now is do you give you give employees a credit card and a budget and rules, right? And then the credit card is how you watch right. what the spending is compared to the to the expectations, right? It's not just credit card. We also do invoices and ACH payment. It's literally and we do plastic cards as well as virtual cards. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is look at all the categories of spend. Like we want to take every penny in your company that is spent, whether it's paying your SEMrush subscription fee monthly or um, organizing a caterer to come to your company for the next company meeting who's going to present you with an invoice or buying something at Amazon or buying travel or taking a customer out for a meal. Any penny they're spending, 
We want visibility into that and we want it tied to budgets. And if we do this correctly, we can completely eliminate expense reports because we're capturing everything in real time. At the time you swipe a Lola card, an alert pops up on your iPhone or your Android phone. You attach it to a budget. You take a picture of the receipt when you need to, which usually you don't need to do that. And there's no expense reports. Yeah, I, I didn't realize how painful expense reports were until I started watching my wife go into this corporate environment where she was photocopying taped on receipts at a major company. Terrible. It's terrible. That was her time. And then yeah. she had to do the math in her head. Is it worth my time to go do this just for the money that I'm getting for it or not? And then there's all this politics involved. And if you don't do it... Um, I should say my second sponsor is Holescater. Let me ask you this. This is a question that my guests, my audience loves. If you if you had nothing, you had to start over with nothing but hosting, let's say from Holescater, what's the new business you would start today, Paul? What's one site that you could say, I could put this up and we could get started and I'd be in business? There's got to be some ideas. That I certainly, there's been a lot of discussion recently about remote work. Um, now that we've proven that your workers could be anywhere in the world, what does that look like? Um, how do you work with remote employees? How do you work with remote partners? I'll tell you something that irritated me today that I want someone to create a company for. We have a great outside lawyer at Lola, but when they send us their invoices once a month, I look at it and I see how much time they charge us for, for certain things. I'm like, are you serious? You spent 40 hours on that simple question, that makes no sense. Now, I know every law firm has time tracking software. Why can't I see that in real time? So when I hang up with my lawyer, yeah. and she spends half an hour or an hour or two hours on something, when she hits done recording, why can't I see that in my dashboard so I can tell in real time how much time she's spending working on my behalf? Oh, I would love that, right? Instead of waiting a few days after the end of the month or a couple of weeks after the end of the month, show it in real time. You know why? Because, Paul, you are the person who wants it and they're the people who pay for it. And what I found in these interviews is you can solve somebody's problems and create great a great business, but it has to be solving the problem of the person who's paying you for the solution, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, how about this? What if, okay. um, so Andrew, you and I are going to go create this company. We're going to come okay. up with a name for it. Okay. And we're going to modernize um, hourly billing. We're going to just revolutionize okay. hourly billing. Now, the first law firm that deploys this, they're going to start winning business because when, when I see that my friend uses a law firm that gives full 100% transparency and real-time billing, I'm going to say, send me a contact. I want to switch to that law firm. I don't want to use antiquated processes that were developed 20 years ago. I want to use processes that developed in a world where people are remote and right. there's, there's sort of people on your team, there's contractors, there's offshore, there's vendors. It should be seamless. It should be like one cohesive, collaborative environment with full transparency. And someone's going to build those tools. And the people who use those tools what, are going to win more business. What about this? Tell me what you think about this angle on it sell it to the client, to the CFOs like you're doing, sell it to the clients and then have them require their law firms put it on so that they could manage expenses. So we're happy to continue working yeah, with you. We are idea. using this new software. We'd like you to implement it so that our team knows where expenses are uh, month to month, day to day. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, I like it. All right, I like it.
like that you said you like it because you're a person who I read that you had what 158 different domains at one point because each each idea here it is 2018 he had 150 158 different entries I guess in a book with different ideas am I right yeah I looked it up recently it's actually just over 250 now in 2021 and the funny thing is <clears throat> I probably have 250 Google documents as well and with each domain with every time someone comes up with an idea that I get excited about the first thing I'll do is I'll write up a Google document with the idea, do a little research, and then I'll spend hours hunting down names. I'm obsessed with brand and names. And I've actually ended up naming some friends' companies and finding domain names for them because I think I think it is important. Even if you're just an app, I think having a brand and a name is important. I can't believe there's a company like Peloton, which does not own Peloton.com. Like it's ridiculous. How can you create no, how can you create a multi-billion dollar company? How can you have a co- uh, company like Zoom that for the longest time didn't own Zoom.com? Like, did they finally own Zoom.com? They did. And they probably paid oh, wow. a huge price for it because they bought it too late when the owner knew that Zoom was this wildly successful company and could afford to pay a lot of money for it. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It's OnePeloton.com. What about um, Lola? You got Lola.com. How much did that cost you? It was expensive. I mean, the funniest story about Lola.com is back in 2004, when Steve and I created what became known as Kayak, we incorporated it as Travel Search Company, Inc. as a temporary name. And both of us are really into brand and we wanted a really great name. We hired an amazing uh, consultant in New York named Carol Costello. And we did this brand exploration with her for a good three or four weeks about what are we, what were our aspirations? What do we want the brand to stand for? We came up with a list of like a hundred words and the first choice actually was Lola.com. Lola.com is what's called a portmanteau. It's two words smashed together, longitude, latitude. You smash that together, you get Lola. The problem is we couldn't afford the name. It was too much money. It was owned by a successful company. So we went with our number two choice, which was kayak. And we bought kayak.com for only $30,000. Anyway, this time when I created a new company, I said, I don't care if it's expensive. I just love that brand. I think there's an opportunity to create a really great tech company called Lola. And we just paid for it. We paid dearly. But in the end, I think it's going to be worth it. Lola, uh, hundreds? No, it's got to be over a million for that. It's such a good name. Short, easy to spell. Yeah, four letters. It was half a million. Wow, that's a good deal, actually. Yeah, I think so. You know, I owned Grab.com for a while. I paid 125000 for it. It was great, though, because people could remember wow, Grab.com. Now, now look where it went. Yeah. Um, why do you keep coming up with these ideas? Why do you keep writing them down instead of saying, let it go? I can't. I don't. I can't explain it, but it's like an itch has to be scratched. And when someone... Has an, I mean, I do have shiny object syndrome, which is why for all of my companies, I have a partner who's very like disciplined business operator. Uh, and I more focus on ideation. I just love when someone presents something, particularly a customer that they struggle with. And I just say, there's got to be a way to improve things for this customer. And then I love the iteration that happens and the discussions that happen, the designs that happen. And that's where it starts for you? Is it, here's the problem, now my job is to find the solution? Yeah, I think coming up with a solution is actually the easier part. I think most tech companies fail for one of two reasons. Either the founders end up hating each other and there's a toxic culture and the company implodes, or they build decent enough technology 
but they build technology for a problem people don't care about or they don't care enough about to pay money. So the most important two things you have to do as an entrepreneur, one is be a good recruiter and build a good culture uh, and sort of like a loving team. And then the second thing is make sure you're solving the right problem. Once you get an incredible team focused on a problem that's been validated, that this is a problem that people like would kill to have a solution to, then you start rapidly iterating, just testing, building a prototype, testing, just keep iterating as fast as you can, faster than a big company can, until you come up with the right solution. And all great companies, tech companies, started with one mission, and then they iterated. And that's the skill of an entrepreneur. How do you find the problem, the initial and then the ongoing ones that you're supposed to be solving? So I, I often lecture on entrepreneurship at a handful of universities. And I'll tell you about an exercise that I often do with my students. I will email the professor. Let's say I'm teaching at some university at Wednesday at 4 p.m. I'll email the professor on Tuesday at 4 p.m., so 24 hours before I show up. And I'll say, please forward this email to your class. And I will say, students, please take a photo between now and the class of something that annoys you. It cannot be a photo you took yesterday. It has to be a photo you take after receiving this email. It can't be a photo you found on the web. Find something that annoys you and take a photo of it. And then what we do in the class, we display a bunch of these photos in the, in the big screen or now on Zoom. And we talk about irritation as inspiration. And we basically say the most important skill for you as an inventor is to figure out what are the annoyances? Like what are the things that are that cause problems for people. And if you hang out with people that are also entrepreneurs and want to improve things, you can find suboptimal experiences anywhere in a restaurant. I mean, in an Uber, anywhere you can find things that don't work well. We were talking earlier about the IVRs, how terrible those are. And if you surround yourself with people who are ideators and like saying, yeah, that is a big problem. It's, I think the easier part is coming up with solutions for it, but we all need to become better problem detectors. And rather than putting up with something that's bad service, we just need to take note of it to say, whoa, that was terrible service. You know, I thought, it, well, that was terrible service. And also it's on me to think about a solution instead of just bitching. Yeah. Right. You know what? I started, to be honest, I started writing a book on that because that's the number one thing I took from all my interviews. The, the, these entrepreneurs who did it in a disciplined uh, way were looking for problems. Sometimes they'd go and be consultants just so they could find a problem. And then I had this sense that maybe this is an idea that's just too, I don't know, common or understood and doesn't need to be explored beyond that. What do you think? Yeah, when, when you think that an idea is too common and yet it's something that intrigues you that you might be passionate about, but you're worried it could be too common, the thing to do is to narrow your scope. So maybe you can't um, solve e-commerce for all influencers. And maybe you say, okay, we're not going to help the guys on TikTok or YouTube. But maybe this company, QShop, if they say, let's just focus on Instagram, by narrowing the focus, they might be able to build something that works for a certain audience. And then beyond that, you can grow to take over more and more audiences, right? I mean, companies start narrow. Amazon just sold books until they had success there. Then they added more and more and more. 
Do you think, Paul, the idea of find a problem and address it, that's the goal of an entrepreneur? Do you think that's commonly understood, that that's just too obvious? It's not. A, no, it's not understood well enough. I think most, so I'm an engineer by training, and most engineers suffer from this thing where you come up with a problem. I immediately jump to a solution. I fall in love with my solution. I keep enhancing the solution to the point where I forget about the problem and I'm not no longer validating. And then when I get conflicting data, I ignore it because I've spent so much time on my solution. And I think what we need to do as entrepreneurs is just continue this focus on, is this really a problem for people? Can you tell me how you're doing that now, how you're doing it with, um, with Moonbeam? How yeah, so you, Moonbeam found the first problem. How are you understanding what the next problem is and if you've nailed it? If you've nailed the first right. problem. Right. So for Moonbeam, again, there's two things we're doing. We're focusing on discovery using this enhanced machine learning technique I've talked about before with these curated clips. And then we're doing relationship between the listener and the host. And the way we're learning about that is we're talking to a lot of hosts. Like one of my mentors is Young Me Moon. She's one of the most popular professors at Harvard Business School. She has an amazing podcast called HBS After Hours. And I talk to her a lot. First of all, I love her podcast. I recommend people check it out. But I, um, I talk with her about how would she like to engage with her audience? Like, what is she dying to know? She'll put a lot of work into a show. And when the show is produced, it's like you throw something over the wall and there's, there's nothing coming back. And so we're helping her come up with a product, Moonbeam, where she will interact with her listeners through the, directly through the app. I'd love to be able to do that. And I know my audience would prefer to do that. I feel like Spotify dipped its toe into it through some kind of, uh, uh, I guess, survey, but they never, I, I never even saw it as a listener um, and I don't have access to it as a creator. I think that I think that that is an underappreciated um, need because everyone's trying to solve for more revenue, and I don't think most of us are are in a space where revenue is a concern yet. I mean, for me, it's it's not a concern because it's handled. For others, it's not a concern because they don't have a, enough of an audience, and they don't have enough of an audience because there's no mechanism for for growth, and there's no mechanism for feedback. And if you find a, when I found people's problems in the beginning of doing the, this this podcast, it was incredibly helpful to then do interviews that address those problems. And then they felt, how do you understand me, Andrew? Well, I, I do because I keep talking to people. Yeah. All right. You've given me access to it. I don't even know. I appreciate that you're here. I don't even know how we could tell people that they could go and check out Moonbeam. Should they just go to moonbeam.fm and ask for access? Like I, like I, that's right. That's right. All right. And your ideal is to get as many listeners as possible on there. And hopefully can I sign up as a creator and start to get feedback? Yes. Yes. All right. I'll go into the app and do it. All right. Thanks so much for being on here. I really appreciate your time, Paul. Wow. I've been looking forward to having a conversation with you for a long time. I want to thank the two sponsors who made this uh, conversation happen. The first is SEMrush, a tool both Paul and I use and both prefer to call SEMrush, but no, they've rebranded. It's called SEMrush. If you want to try it for free and see why we're so uh, excited about them, go to SEMrush.com slash Mixergy. And the second one is if you've got an, uh, an idea-based brain, you keep coming up with ideas, you want a website or a hosting company to launch your site on, go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. They'll let you try it for free right now. Paul, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks a lot, Andrew. This Actually, wait, really I'm fun. sorry. They don't let you try for free. I'm like, my, my offers are screwed up in my head. No, they'll give you the lowest price possible. Take good care of it. It's practically free. It's just a couple bucks.
Sorry about that, Paul. I cut you off. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Bye, everyone.